That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles and the Big Apple in New York City, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver, coming to you from Hawaii. Not really, but uh, (laughs) I just want all you caregivers to realize that it's your life too. And by golly, you should go to Hawaii or you should go to the beach. You should go to all these places. Do what you don't normally do because you got to put your oxygen mask on first. Okay, well, I am Dave, the caregiver's caregiver at <laughs> caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg at thecaregiverspace.org. And we are coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 25 global and audio video platforms, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio, and a whole bunch more. I'm not going to bore you. In fact, we are voted number one podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and number two on Airing Village and number three on Feedspot out of thousands. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. Yes, Rachel Eng- Engstrom. I practiced, I practiced. Rachel Engstrom was <laughs> <laughs> a master's in social work is a certified health education specialist. She's written a groundbreaking memoir and self-book on her experience as a young cancer wife caregiver, then widow, and with the increasing number of young women and men becoming widows and widowers due to not only cancer and serious illnesses, but also new COVID-19. So this resource is needed more now than ever. And Rachel shares her journey in a raw and honest way, which is the best way, while providing step-by-step resources to help you navigate your own journey. Never before has there been a combination of the personal gift of the healthcare journey, along with steps on how to navigate treatment, diagnosis, ins and outs of the hospital life, employment, finances, insurance, self-care, grief and loss, (laughs) and much more. She talks about it all, folks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you can find Wife Widow, Now What? How I Navigated the Cancer World, and How You Can Too. Before I get started, I want to thank last week's guest, Angel Salucci, likes to refer to herself as a speaker, teacher, guide, and friend. She's worked in the healthcare system. Also, great interview. Check it out on caregiverdave.com and all those other platforms mentioned above, and you'll be able to hear this one as well. And uh, okay, enough of that. Welcome to the show, Rachel. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. I always like to ask my guests just who is Rachel Engstrom and why was she placed on this here earth? (laughs) Wow, that's a big question. So (laughs) start out big here. (laughs) All right, sure. So I actually moved to Minnesota 20 and a half years ago when I was 18, did not know one person. Moved here from Michigan to go to the University of Minnesota. I got my bachelor's in anthropology And I did not plan on staying past the four years, but sophomore year, first semester, I met this really cute older guy 
and <laughs> ended up getting married after I graduated from college and the rest is history. So um, I work in mental health. I have the last 13, 14 years and I really enjoy advocating and helping people. Oh, good. That's a nice answer, short and sweet and to the point. Um, so how long has it been since your uh, husband who you were a spousal caregiver for, uh, cancer. Uh, first of all, when was he first diagnosed with cancer and how long mm -hmm. did it last and when did he pass? Sure, so he, Grayson was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in January of 2011. And oddly enough, um, we had Chinese food on December 31st on New Year's Eve and he had a fortune <laughs> cookie that said, you're about to have a major life change. That is not what we thought that fortune cookie yeah. meant. <laughs> So 15 days later, he was diagnosed, and then um, he was in a clinical trial here at the University of Minnesota and got a lot better and did really well for a year. And then he relapsed three days before our eighth wedding anniversary, and then we hospitalized him on that day. And then he had a bone marrow transplant and all of the chemo and radiation and things like that, unfortunately, just damaged so many of his organs that Two days after I turned 31, on April oh. 21st, 2013, I had to take him off life support. And how old was he? He was 37. How does a 37-year-old guy get cancer? I thought that only happens to older people. Nope. And what was interesting <laughs> is the kind of leukemia that he had, usually little kids get or the oh elderly my. get. So it was interesting that he had that form of leukemia. So how have you been handling this and how did you handle it? I know uh, in your book you talk about all those things, grief, the grief process. Did you even know you were in a grief process? No. <laughs> <laughs> grief, and, what? You know, the thing is when you're a caregiver and you're, especially when you're the spouse significant other, you don't have the luxury of that because you're just going, you're in survival mode all the time and you have to be the strong counterpart. So because you are that, you're just going with every day being optimistic. This is what we have to do. This is what's going to happen. And you envision, you know, down the road, we're going to get back to our normal life. So it right, wasn't little until... Speed bump. Did, yeah. you, did, you, did you really feel you were going to get back to normal life? In a way, yeah. I think part of it, the reason is because we were so young. Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed like this is going to be a blip because people okay. do actively go through those things and Who's get better. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really think about it. It wasn't until I was told on, so he died on April 21st. It wasn't until I was told on April 17th, like, I'm sorry. You know, he was in the ICU once, miraculously yeah. got out. And then once, you know, they said, I'm sorry, I knew. Yeah. You know, there medically was nothing else they could do. Mm-hmm. And your children, you have children? No, nope. So part of that as well is I had really bad endometriosis and had surgeries of my own in the same week that he had um, his bone marrow transplant. I had ovarian cyst rupture scraped off and stuff. So six months after he died, I just threw in the towel. I could barely walk. I was in so much pain. So I also had a hysterectomy then too. Wow. That is a lot really? to deal with. <laughs> How, yes. <laughs> how did you handle it? I mean, how long did it take you before you discovered support groups, for example? I didn't. 
So really, no, the tricky thing was working full time. You know, the first five weeks he was in his induction phase of heavy chemo in the hospital and things like that um, was all me, the primary caregiver. And then my parents that have been married, this was 10 years ago, they were married 45 years at the time, they decided they were gonna come and switch shifts. So they actually lived with us. And at the time I was like, no way, I do not wanna be 28 and have my mom and dad live with me. And my dad, you know, fold my laundry, fold my underwear, be, you know, my parents <laughs> in my house and everything. And they ended up being the one of the biggest blessings to come out of this whole thing because they were there to take care of him, take him to his appointments and things when I had to work. And, um, one of the biggest blessings out of all of it that I really found out after he died compared to other young widows is that I was with him because a lot of people have their significant others, you know, die in Afghanistan or come back from mm. war and take their own lives because of the PTSD and things like this, this. So I was actually able to be with him and knowing that I had love, that I was loved and all those things made it, I think, easier for me to grieve. But as far as actual support when he was sick, it was almost like I was too busy. Um, mm. The year after he was ill, I got a therapist. So started going to individual therapy myself, which was amazing to have that third party outlet. And then I also joined the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's team and training program where I started from scratch, walking twice a week with strangers that became like mm -hmm. family where as I'm training for a half marathon, were discussing, you know, the people in their lives that they're working, you know, to raise money for and things like that. So mm. within that, I found this whole other family that to this day I still have. So that's, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked before the show um, and we were discussing things like uh, what are the most important things that someone can do to not lose their mind while caregiving? Because you were balancing a lot of things and um, and I think you were in survival mode and, and maybe you were drawing upon the type of personality you are, you know, just fix things, get it done. And mm -hmm. and uh, you had a, an immediate problem and you didn't have time to look for help or take care of your needs. I assume you were very close to burnout. Uh, but talk about some of those things that you were yeah. going through so that you did not lose your mind. I don't know, maybe you did lose your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think in some ways I probably did. But the biggest, one of the biggest things, and instead of calling my book Wife Widow Now It, years ago when I was thinking about putting it together, I thought of calling it how social media saved my life while I, you know, whatever, da-da-da, while I was going through this. So CaringBridge, the website where you can do your medical update journey and share it with people, my book is actually chronological order of my CaringBridge post, my Facebook post, later my healing blog as a widow, Interspliced with the narrative and then the toolbox of how to navigate all of these worlds. So wow. I received a lot of support just virtually, which kept me going, you know, even with people just saying, we're praying for you, we're thinking about you. Mm -hmm. It mean, it really put marbles in my bucket of feeling, you know, more heard, more validated. Once he was home, so like I said, he got sick in January. By like that summer, I was going to concerts and things like that. Like there was a concert I wanted to go to that I couldn't find anybody to go with me. And it was like 90 miles away. So I drove, went to the concert, spent a night Good in a hotel, you. then came home. But within Did those Did you feel things, guilty about that, by the way? I was just going to say within <laughs> those things, it's tricky because I felt like I should feel guilty, but I didn't. Good and you. you wonder... 
you wonder if you're going to get judged as well. <laughs> and like after he died, you know, people had had fundraisers and different things like that. And I had been like, you know, the hamster running on the wheel. And then after he dies, it's like the wheels taken away and I'm still running and I'm running. So it took a while to, you know, not have to think what's his temperature, what's going on, all these things, you know, just yeah. the routine of all of that. So two and a half months after he died, I actually went to Alaska and I always said, you know, tell me what you will. I'll never go on a cruise. I've seen the Titanic, but I didn't think I'd be a widow at 31 either. So I took the money that I'd been gifted and I went to the inside passage all the way from like Anchorage to Vancouver and back. So over the course of 17 days, I was in Alaska and it was this amazing, but painful, but amazing healing journey. And, you know, my parents told me couple people close in my life were like she's spending money people gave her on that and they were like you have no idea what she's See, you are judged people <laughs> will always judge done. you yeah but within doing that when things got really bad as a widow and i'm working three part-time jobs to try to keep my house and all these different things i was able to look back on that and think you know i did this i did this for myself i've gotten this far doing these things so whether it's like a cup of tea or you know, watching a favorite TV show or, you know, buying the new CD of whoever you like or going on that trip. It's so, so important. And actually the summer before yeah. he got sick again, I did two, um, I'm not going to talk too much cause it's in my book and they're just hilarious, <laughs> but I went on two different, um, retre retreats. One was a silent Buddhist retreat and one was a silent Catholic retreat. And I'm not Catholic or Buddhist, <laughs> but I just needed the space and the time to get away. But, you know, you just have to carve out these things for yourself and you just have to really not care what people think, which is tricky, Absolutely. but you just have to do what's right for you. Was that easy for you or was it hard to not care? It was easy. Like the, the retreats and things like that, it was really yeah. easy because it was just like, if I don't do this, something's going to, tire's going to yeah. burst. So that it was a very logical decision you made. A lot of caregivers are emotionally based and so... Um, depending on your personality and your environment and how you were raised, mm -hmm. some caregivers fare well, but unfortunately it's the minority, isn't it, Adrian? Well, yes, it is the minority. <laughs> I was also a lucky one. I fared pretty well. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I considered myself a young widow at 63. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, and my husband also had uh, cancer. But I had two people that I was taking care of who had cancer because my mother-in-law lived with us as well mm -hmm. after she was diagnosed with lymphoma. Wow. So I know what you mean she's by the Adrian's hands. A saint. She's going yeah. no, to be promoted saint. to sainthood. I am not a saint. You, you do what you have your husband, to do. Your mother and your mother-in-law, you're a saint. Well, okay. <laughs> my medal's so, in the mail. So, uh, Rachel, what do you wish you would have been better at while caregiving? It sounds like you were pretty good. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. Well, in hindsight, it seems like, because people have read my book and they're like, you did a really good job of taking care of yourself. And I'm like, mm. I think the toughest part was once he was gone, because I had used all of my energy to take care of him and what he needed. Once he was gone, it just really, I mean, luckily I had 
like an insurance policy that allowed me not to work for like eight months Thank after God. he died. And I know that that was very unique. A lot of people have to go back to work the next week, things like that. Right. I knew I was extremely blessed that way, but it was really hard for me to ask for help. One of the things in my book that I talk about in the beginning with the catastrophic illness diagnosis and whatnot is when people want to help, I have a whole list of how to ask and tangible ways for people to help you, whether what? it's, you know, cutting <laughs> the grass or, you know, shoveling your driveway or, you know, we had elderly neighbors bring us fresh, you know, baked bread, whatever, all those little things, those things that are so meaningful or you're too tired mm -hmm. to do, I list all of those things. And what's incredible is even just in the 10 years since my husband was sick, so much has changed as far as, you know, now they have like meal planning websites and all these things, you know, to help people, to help caregivers. But within that, after he died, I don't feel like I, I expressed how I felt. Like I had this smaller Facebook group, this healing blog where I bled on paper of how I was feeling very raw, very honest. All these posts are in the book. But as far as what's really tricky is when you are a caregiver and your person's alive or after they're gone, people go back to their real lives after the catastrophic illness, after the big hurrah, the memorial service, and you're left there like, now what? And that's the really tricky part is I had to realize that I had to ask for help. I had to ask for people to check in on me, things like that. And it took months, like it took a lot of swallowing pride to be able to do that. Like I, I now on my phone, I have alarm set so I can check in with people a couple times a week because otherwise we just get so busy, we forget these things. But I know that, you know, had, if I could do it over, I think that I would have requested, you know, more people meeting me at the hospital or at the clinic or going for a walk or doing those right. things because you really do eat a lot of the hospital food. You really, I've told people like, <laughs> Adrian, you know, when your spouse dies, you don't sit around and eat salads. You want cake. You want mashed potatoes. You want like all the comfort food. Comfort but that, foods. That doesn't, after a while, that just makes you more sluggish. And then your motivation's not there and all those types of things. So it's a slippery slope. So I just learned all these different ways of, you know, I could have done these things, but I also embrace it that it is what it was and I'm healthy now. So it's, it's a delicate balance. Yeah. So... What? How old were you when you got married? 22. And the cancer was for 10 years? Nope, he died 10, or cancer, he was diagnosed 10 years ago. Um, okay. So when he got sick, we'd been together about nine years, married six. I see. Well, thank God for that. I thought that yeah. it happened right after you got married and... Uh, and uh, you really didn't have a chance to have a normal, loving relationship. What was interesting is when one of the times he got fevers and he went back about six months after diagnosis, one of the nurses mm -hmm. was like, oh, you're still together. And I was like, <laughs> what? And she told me she'd worked there like 25 years, like 70% of the people leave their significant yeah. others that are ill. They just can't handle it. And it's just, it just blew my mind. Only the know, strong man. survive, yes. Mm. We're still together 45 years and we've been uh, awesome. living together post-stroke 24 years and people are surprised at that as well. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just the new normal. Yeah. Uh, my wife will never speak again, probably. We we're hoping and believing in a miracle that she might, but you know, it's okay if she doesn't because we both accepted it 
and she has her power chair, and we travel all over the world. We we made lemonade out of the lemons that life has given us, and you know it wasn't really her fault. The paramedics took her to the wrong hospital who didn't have the right equipment, but hey, things happen for a reason, and and we're both uh, grateful for what we do have, and because a lot of people don't. You, so took the, about... you took the sour lemons, made lemonade, and added your own <laughs> sugar to it. <laughs> so, listen, uh, let me ask you one more question, then we'll take a break. Um, what can some caregivers do to take the stress off of themselves? Because it's the stress that causes the burnout. If we can get rid of the stress, maybe we can get rid of the burnout. I don't know. I think one thing that's really important is to have that respite care. Whether you're going for a walk or realizing for me, it was really hard. So when he was in the hospital for his bone marrow transplant, he was in there 90 days. And I tried to spend the night as much as I could, especially on weekends. And I would feel bad because he'd want me there. But I'd be like, I just have to spend a night at home. I have to do this for myself. You know, I think being able to realize you do need to step away. And even though you want to be there and they probably really want you to be there, it's really important just to get out of that space, whether you go or, you know, have a now socially distanced dinner with a friend or that walk or that whatever. It's really important to take that me time because you're going to need it and it will just build you up with, even though you're so tired, it is going to like recharge your battery in ways that you don't and won't realize till later. Yeah. Let me be raw and honest because that's your theme here. Um, yeah. I, I know there are people listening who are saying, oh, my God, how could she do that? You know, I could never do that, you know, and, and judge they're judging you right now. And sure. uh, how could you be so strong that this natural, logical decision, because I agree with you, it's a natural, it's a logical decision. If you don't do it, if you don't put your oxygen mask on first, you're both going to uh, go down under and and who knows what will happen to your loved one the family will stick them in a nursing home or something sure but how were, were you just a natural logical person uh people want to know how they can be more like you because the guilt would kill them so i had actually started being a personal care attendant when i was 20 in college oh, so i had the familiarity of working with vulnerable people things like that you know, I'd worked in mental health, out in the community, case manager, independent living skills, all that kind of stuff. You were trained. But I knew the greatest part of it was, is I had so much fear within me that he's going to die, he's going to die, he's going to die, he's sick. All these things that I knew that if I didn't take time for myself, all the fears that I had might blow out my face and I might <laughs> say them to him. So I had to, I had to have an outside outlet. I couldn't because he, when you're, especially when you're going through cancer and you're hospitalized and you're there by yourselves all the time and your person goes home, you really are by yourself. It's ugly and it's lonely. And I could not let my thoughts, everything I was going on pile on top of what he had as well. So my way of keeping my stuff to me <clears throat> was taking those steps back. And if I didn't do that, it might cause more harm than help because yeah. I'd rather take time for myself than not that I'd be like resentful, but you know, when you do something and then you're resentful against someone, yeah. I didn't want things to happen that would be detrimental, that would hurt him more. 
and I could not let him know I am so scared you're going to die. Because I was like, you're going to be fine because I <laughs> didn't have that luxury and I was the super supportive person. I just had to go with it. So every that's now and then I just had to check out. That's why I asked you if you thought things were going to go back to normal. Because and I, I, I did. And I felt from the, from the first diagnosis when they, when they told me, uh, you'll, you'll be better for a couple of years and then you're going to die. Um, that, then this will kill you. Sure. From that moment on, I was, okay, he's going to die. But yeah. and, I was always little, positive. And what a lot of people have the trouble with the guilt is that, oh, my God, what if he dies when I'm on a cruise or when I'm getting my nails done or when I wasn't there or whatever? That's what kills people. I don't mean kills them literally, but that's yeah. what, where the guilt Eats overtakes their mind. And so they won't go get their nails done. They won't go have lunch with a friend that they've been doing. They won't go to the gym, et cetera. Uh, won't go get a massage, won't do anything for themselves because, no, if you know, something might happen and, and then I'll feel guilty. And So how can people just stop feeling guilty? How do you just turn off that guilt thing, especially well, if you're Jewish because Jewish mothers have instilled it into their children. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Got to be guilty. For, for <laughs> me, it was more like I just put all of my trust in God and I thought this is mm. hard enough. <clears throat> he's not going to let it happen when I'm not there. That was the way that I thought. Faith. It's just, there you go. Yeah. But total faith and Adrian, what you were saying, isn't it amazing? And Dave, what you went through too, isn't it amazing the crass way that medical professionals tell you things? <laughs> so yeah. my husband's hip actually started to fall out of the socket and collapse. And he was dragging oh. his leg behind him from steroids <laughs> that he had to take in the, um, I can't think of the right word. The osteo doctor was like, asked the research nurse, what's his expected survival? Right. And you're just like, <laughs> like, what? And then, you know, after he dies, I call social security and they're like, what's his expiration date? And I'm like, he's not a can of beans. Like, <laughs> it's just, you know, it'd be wonderful if everyone could be as sensitive as we are, but they're not. Yeah. <laughs> you want to well, take a break, Dave? Yes, we'll take a break. Be right back. Don't go away. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. We are back with our guest, Rachel Eng Engstrom. 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 Okay. Make it yep. sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about um, her story and her book. And 
we might as well start talking about your book. I was going to do it later, but um, tell us about your book. Why did you write it? What do you hope to accomplish by it? Sure. So Wife Widow Now, I want this puppy in the hands of everyone because <laughs> when you're going through this, Puppies. a catastrophic illness, all these things, you feel so alone. And more than likely, you have someone in your life that's like, oh, my aunt had cancer or they had Crohn's or they had this, but it is not the same as your spouse, significant other or things like that. And it's it's really tricky because the first thing when you find out that your person is ill is, oh my gosh, I don't want them to die, right? And then it's right. medical care and then it's work. How do I navigate you know, working and doing that? And then it's finances. So I thought, um, I need to write all this down, how I did it, how I learned all of it. I spell out, you know, diagnosis, treatment, all the kinds of questions, you know, I've gotten other people in my life that have gone through similar things, um, questions they, you know, would recommend as well. When I'm navigating insurance and talking about it in my narrative, then I spell out what's a deductible, what's a copay, how to navigate disability, social security, the Family Medical Leave Act, if you need, you know, ADA, American Disability Act things. So say you do have cancer and then you go back to work and you're doing better, if you had a job where you were standing, might you might need an accommodation to have a stool or, you know, a chair or something. So I go through all the different avenues of what you need to do to navigate it and then how you need to um, adapt things. When I talk, I have a lot about, you know, self-care for yourself, but making sure you get that mental health self-care for the person that's ill as well, support groups, all those types of things, because they need that as well. And you're each, you're going through it together, but you need your own support from your own support systems as well. Like we went to a, when he was in remission, we went to a cancer conference in Las Vegas for stupid cancer. And he, he just, it's an organization for young adults. I know. <laughs> and he just lit up and was, I mean, I almost felt like crying so many times seeing him just feel like he belonged because he'd been so isolated with tons of people that were supportive, but they weren't in his shoes. Right. So, you know, going through all of those things. So I, I, I've been told, you know, Rachel, your book's a love story and a toolbox. And, you know, it shows how, it's from the day of him feeling sick to, which is January 2015 through fall of, um, or excuse me, 2011 through fall of 2015 when I've started this new life and have a new job and things like that. So I, I really show you the grit of, you know, he's in the hospital and I'm wondering if he's going to die and I hear someone on her cell phone complaining about, you know, having a chronic cold and I wanted to scream at her, are you kidding? You know, my person, I don't know if he's going to die and you're complaining about coughs are up. Like all the reality of that, of being in your own fish bowl to how to navigate all of it, how to take care of yourself, how to reality check yourself. And then as a widow, you know, at 31, how to plan a funeral, how to plan a funeral on the cheap, how to, you know, navigate a whole world because when you're 31 and your spouse dies, you don't have Gladys coming over with a, you know, ham and cheese sandwich tray or anything. You have young <laughs> friends that are like, how can I help? What can I do? Right. You know, it's, it's a really tricky, sticky place to be in. And then as far as, you know, more than likely whether your person 
does survive the chronic illness or they pass away, more than likely you're not gonna be able to afford your standard of living that you had before. So how to redo all the finances again. Um, in the beginning with a diagnosis and whatnot, I actually have finances with a budget sheet and all kinds of Budgets stuff. Budgets of everything, yeah. Yeah, how to look at all of that. But I thought a year after he died, I just thought, well, crap, this was so hard. And if I had to, if I had to give someone advice of how to go through it, why not lay it all out? Because I have the skills to be able to do it and write my story. So I started putting the post in chronological order of my social media post in 2014, and then I kind of left it. And then from 2018 to 2020, I spent about two years writing the book, and it was actually really painful to write. It was a lot of PTSD, but I thought if I can even just help five people feel less alone and know how to navigate this. And even if they just take, you know, two or three things and are able to apply it from themselves and feel less lonely, then I've met my goal. And I really hope that this is something that catches on like wildfire because when you are in it, it's the most horrific thing in the world. And you have people that want to be supportive, but they just don't get it. And the <laughs> thing is you don't want them to get it either because you don't want them to have to be where you are. You know, and I have a chapter called Bitter Betty because I'm trying to raise money for my marathon for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and I'm more focused on he died and da 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 da. And someone had to point out to me like, you need to focus on the positive things the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is doing. But for me, I was just so bitter. I'd been robbed, right. you know, all these things that had happened. Um, and now I was saying, Adrian, before you came on the call, I'm doing a 10 week campaign. I'm in week three right now, trying to raise $60,000 in honor Ooh. of my late husband for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I'm so That's focused great. on this was, this was me then, but this is me now. And I was able to go through the most difficult, ugly thing possible. And now I'm just pumped and excited because as amazing as it is to be here, Every three minutes, someone is diagnosed with blood cancer, 80% of childhood cancer survivors, and it's the number one childhood cancer, blood cancers, they mm -hmm. go on to have chronic health conditions. So how can we raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society so this doesn't happen? Right now, there are so many things where we treat the acute illness, not what happens later, all these things. So I'm just fired up to get this out there and help people because you really do feel isolated. And this really is the first of its kind to be a memoir with self-help to navigate the medical world. Well, I, you're amazing. <laughs> 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 so there's so many questions I, I wanna ask, but I don't know where to start. Yeah. Um, uh, go back to what you were saying where you were talking about um, asking for help, it's so hard. I know it's hard to ask for help. I, it was hard for me to ask for help before I became a caregiver. Um, delegation is really important. Thank God my oldest daughter took charge when it first happened, got a big whiteboard and she had people, you know, bringing this and helping here and doing all that. Um, I'm sure you've got some help with delegating and uh, especially if someone's not good at it in your book. Talk about delegating and uh, what to do when people ask how to help. You said you had a whole list of ways to ask yeah. for help, creative ways. I think that, thank you. I think the biggest thing is to play to people's strengths. If it's like the guy that that was in his 60s that lived across the street, he had joyfully told me many times how he worked inside 
in a managerial business for 27 years, and now he would mow anyone's lawn that wanted help. Mm-hmm. He loved to be outside, things like that. <laughs> one day, you know, being in Minnesota with the winters we have, one day the car was totally, completely snowed in, and they, he and his wife got out and shoveled us out, and, you know, so, you know, doing that, letting people know if people, their way of showing love is making meals, let them bring you a meal. You know, if people are wanting to run to the store, or do these different things, you know, back then when this was happening 10 years ago, they didn't have shipped by Target or, you know, Amazon Prime delivery or all those things. I But man, that would have been amazing. But, <laughs> you know, letting people know tangible things and using their God-given gifts to be able to help you because it's, I have someone in my life right now that I met once my book, I met her through publicizing my book. So she's in Winnipeg and her husband, she took care of him for two years in five months. He had leukemia. Then she was diagnosed with the exact same kind of leukemia, and he died four months later. So now she's fighting for her life by herself. (laughs) She has her neighbors across the hall, but that's it. And when you think about it, you know, how do we navigate this? How do we ask for help? How do we do the proper channels? But when you're in these situations, you know, right now, if you know that someone enjoy, I sent her like, a bunch of diamond painting puzzles and things like that. And now it's like her her jam. She loves it. She does it. She's doing it for her nieces and nephews, all of these things. You know, just those things, if you know what someone enjoys, provide them with things for distraction. Provide them with things, you know, she's in Canada, so I sent her cookies and things that you can't get there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> you can't just, get cookies in Canada. That's not, the, <laughs> not the couple specific kinds that I got her that are from here, but it's... You know, it, it's asking for help and doing those things, and it, it it's delegating that in a way where, um, you know, I, I a couple people that are close to her said to me, I feel so helpless, I don't know what to do. And I said, send her stuff to do or just tell her that you're caring, tell her that you're listening, you know, all these types of things. And I think that the most valuable thing that anyone can do for someone going through a tough circumstance, it's free. And it doesn't take long, just check in with them. Tell them you're listening. Be willing to listen. And the easiest way to do it is give someone a call on your way home from work or while you're cooking or something like that. The most valuable thing you can do is is that. And say you have a group of friends, delegate. I'm going to check in with them on Monday. You check in with them on Wednesday. You know, those types of things. Um, It's just really important to be able to do that. And I think after the fact of of something so difficult i had to ask for help like i actually posted on facebook like i am so in such a bad place please please contact me please send me a card whatever because i didn't want my parents to know this i didn't want my siblings to know this like they knew i was sad but i didn't want them to know how sad i was and they're all in different posted on facebook yeah. I did. And yeah. you didn't want anyone to know. Maybe no, I didn't want my either. family to know. They weren't on there. But <laughs> I did that in my healing blog, which was quite a bit smaller. But I had a friend that came over and took me for a walk, like a dog. Like she had to get <laughs> coax me out the door, and I left my dog inside, and she took did me for a walk. she put a collar on you? Not that day. But, <laughs> but you know, it's it's really important to let people know and that's the really tough thing when you've been a caregiver 
you're so used to being the strong one that when it comes time to take care of yourself, it's difficult to flip that switch. Yeah. I know. I'm going to take I another. Know. What? Another break? <laughs> Let's take another break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial, I don't believe this is happening, anger, oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening, to a form of bargaining, how can I get out of this, to depression, which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. Okay. And we're back on the Caregiver Dave show with Rachel Engstrom and my co-host Adrian Gruber. And I wanted to ask you, you know, um, what's the best and the worst of caregiving? Uh, you already talked about what you were good at. Uh, you know, was there anything you were, or what you were bad at, I'm sorry. Was there anything that you were really, really good at? And you can just integrate that in uh, the best and the worst. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, you know, the more I talk about it and think about it, um, what's really interesting is about my book, I feel so distanced from it. Like I've, like I would write for like eight hours and cry for like 20 minutes. Mm. And I really, I would be crying for this girl, this woman that went through it. And the oddest thing is that it was me. And looking back on all of it, you know, it's just such a mix of emotions and different things. And my parents that were helping caregive for my late husband with me, we would tell him that my husband, that it was such a privilege and a pleasure to take care of him and he just didn't believe us. I mean, granted, he was yeah. not the most pleasant person, yeah. you know, on steroids <laughs> and all those different things. But brain. <laughs> yeah, I think the more I talk about this, kind of an analogy I formulated that I like to use all the time is, you know, back in like the Yukon Klondike days, you know, people would put it all on the line. They're not adequately dressed like they would be today. They're going up there, up the mountain, just putting it all on the line just to pan for those, you know, to ax for those little nuggets of gold. I think that when we're going through something really difficult, you have to hold on to the fact that even though what you're going through is not pretty, it doesn't really make sense and it is definitely not fair and definitely not what you signed up for, for what you want in life, more than likely you're going to get a couple nuggets of what you're going through. Um, like all three of us today here definitely have of how you're going to use this experience to advocate and help other people. Even if it's just one person where you can be like, I'm so sorry. I've been there. I get it. You know, knowing that this journey that you're on is, you know, cheesy as it kind of sounds it's it's not for a reason you know i really don't think that god gives us more than we can handle we definitely get more than we can handle a lot but i think we're given <laughs> we're given the, the grace of how to deal with all of it and i yes. think that just knowing that more than likely when someone is helping you with something 
you will probably help with them with something in the future. So I think knowing that you're gonna get these gold nuggets through your experience that you'll be able to use for something better to help yourself or help someone else later is a really positive. I think a really negative part is seeing your person so vulnerable in ways you don't really want to. Mine is in the last couple of days and I was even nervous writing this in my book, knowing that my siblings would read it because, you know, they'd been on this journey loosely, I mean, supporting me, but loosely, you know, in different states and things. But when I'm writing about my husband needing to be cleaned up and he's 6'2 and he's hanging close to the ceiling in a Hoyer lift and it's just like a shell of who he was and it's the saddest, most gruesome thing in the world you're seeing someone in ways that you just shouldn't. It's not normal, it shouldn't be the way, that way. And I think that that's the really tricky, ugly part of caregiving is just the vulnerability of why is this happening? Why am I seeing this, the, the unnatural part of it? I think that that's the toughest part is, you know, there's beauty within all of it, but the actuality of it and the unjustness of it, it's its just really hard to watch. And I, I hate to ask you this next question, but I have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I know you've probably thought about it. Maybe you thought about it before your husband died, but have you ever thought of remarrying? Uh, some people do it within a year. Some people do it within two years. Some people do it within 10 years. Some people never do it. No, I am a one man, a one woman a person, etc. Where are you uh, thinking in all so of that? So it's actually, yeah, it's actually been eight years for me and I don't publicize any of it on mm. advertising my book or I don't talk about it, but I do have a happily ever after. You just have to read my book to find out. <laughs> it's a nice little, it's a nice little, oh my gosh, you went through hell. And then you're like, so <laughs> I, I have a happily That's ever true. after as well. I, yes. it, it took time, but I knew when the time was right. And no, I'm not getting married, but I'm much older than you are. <laughs> There's no <laughs> need to get married. <laughs> For me, it was crazy because I met him at 19 and then he died. At, so I, when I met him, he, I was 19. When he died, right. I was 31. So then when I did date, I was like, boy, crazy. I never done this I was just an idiot like I just I didn't know people lie so much I didn't know they were so uh, mean so just going yeah. through all that was pretty pretty insane and I do have a chapter on that in my book I mean I remember talking to someone on the phone and they're like did you catch your husband's cancer and you're like what like <laughs> so it's just it's all of those you really do when your person leaves you really do have to reboot your life like a computer and start over and in one of those things is it's love it might be a job it might be a new home it's really tricky but if you can have in your heart knowing that what you had was real and use that to help carry you forward not everybody has that some people have very tricky caregiver relationships you might have a narcissistic parent you might have oh, yeah. be guilted obligated all these types of things but luckily for me um you know i feel like that was maybe the grace i got in this situation it was a very crappy awful situation but at least it happened when i was young that i had the energy and the spirit and the ability to move forward with positivity which i very much recognize that not everybody has 
I I was also very lucky to uh, to have that kind of grace, and it it makes such a difference looking back, feeling that I did everything I possibly could, and not feeling guilty, and and knowing the thing was the anticipatory grief did prepare me for widowhood because I was planning, and it sounds grisly, but I was planning what would happen after. Mm -hmm. And that in part kept me going because it was, it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Mm-hmm. And we wanted it to be good for as long as it could. But when it finally happened, yeah. I I grieved, <clears throat> I grieved and grieved and grieved. And then mm-hmm. I still grieve, but it's mm-hmm. different, you know. Mm-hmm. But yes, there is, I have a happy ending. <laughs> So we're running out of time. Uh, in the next minute, can you talk about humor and how humor keeps you from crying? Uh, at least it did me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really beneficial with all of the things out there. Like what I had to do is I had to get off social media for like six months. You know, everybody with their happy babies, happy lives, happy marriages. Oh, yeah. Step away from it. I think when you surround yourself, don't listen to sad music. Don't watch sad movies. You know, when I was watching, you know, a few months after he died and I was watching Everybody Loves Raymond and Friends and things like that and just belly laughing and discovering, like, you know what? You know, I I do have joy in things that are going on. I think when you're purposeful of having friendships, I had a friend of 12 years that just became very toxic and judgmental and I cut her out of my life. And it was a huge thing that not a lot of people understood, but it was something I had to do. I think when you surround yourself with the appropriate people and TV and movies and, you know, music and all those things that just crack you up, that bring you back to life of who I am, because when you're one half of a couple and then one of them is gone, what do you do, right? So I think as far as, you know, being a caregiver and going through all these difficult things, just surround yourself with positivity and it's not always going to be there. But I think knowing that, just take it all with a grain of salt. God says, you know, make you make plans and he laughs. It's, it's totally true. It is not funny, <laughs> but it is totally true. And I think just knowing that so many people have been where you are and it doesn't make it easier or less painful or any more fair, but that you're not alone and you're in really good company. And there are people like me, you know, who wrote this book to be a kindred to you. And, you know, I hope people really access this resource because, I've been there, and I'm okay. I'm glad. (laughs) Thank Um, you. So in the last uh, minute or so, let's talk about how we can contact you, what if somebody wants to buy the book, um, who's the publisher, et cetera. Yeah, you can find Wife, Widow, Now What. It's exclusively on Amazon. You can get it in paperback or ebook version. And then you can find me, Wife, Widow, Now What, on Facebook or Instagram. And if you have any questions or want to connect or anything like that, I am there. Is the audio book coming out? uh, Unless I record it myself. I'm not sure (laughs) how that would work. And 
And then if That's you're hearing, <laughs> if you're hearing this before May 21st, if you want to donate and save lives through the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, I also have those links on my social media. And how do they do that? How do they yeah, donate? so That's you just, link. you you donate on that link and it, it all goes towards it. I'm pretty excited if I can raise $50,000, I can get a grant in my late husband's name for research, so. Oh, that's wonderful. And they can find the link by going where? To Wife Widow Now on Instagram or Facebook. WifeWidowNow.com? Wife Widow Now what? I'm, so if you were to look that what? up on Instagram or Just Facebook. Just Google or, those words. Mm-hmm. All right. I use Google to find you. <laughs> well, it's been great having you on the show. I learned a lot. And uh, you're an amazing person, and you're doing an amazing thing. So keep it up. That's what I got to say. Thank you. Thank you both. So thanks for coming on the show. And uh, Adrian, uh, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, I assume they go to thecaregiverspace.org. Mm -hmm. Adrian at. <laughs> for your email, Adrian at caregiverspace.org and I'm at caregiverdave.com lots of good things there and um, gosh we'll see you next time right because we're here every single week same time same channel bye bye <laughs> sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise like the birds will never sing 